collection of eggs, which I emptied in time-honoured fashion by making a pinhole at either end and blowing out the contents. I was under strict orders from my parents not to take more than one egg from any nest I found, but the temptation was always strong, and in any case for species deemed harmful, like crows and magpies, the prohibition was waived. Twice I hurt myself quite badly and was carried home with my head covered in blood after falling from a height in attempts to reach the stinking domed structures built by magpies in the treetops. I shall never forget landing face first in a patch of brambles and ripping my hands to shreds as I crawled desperately through the thorns in an attempt to get breath into my lungs. Accidents notwithstanding, the nesting season was always a time of miracles. How did a pair of long-tailed tits manage to rear a dozen or fifteen babies inside their tiny vertical oblong of wool and moss and grass? How did wood pigeons stop their bright white eggs rolling off their platforms of dry sticks from which they were constantly departing with a great clatter? How did green woodpeckers interpret the messages they sent each other in the bursts of gunfire, which they generated when hammering out nest holes in the trunks of trees. Wandering about the woods, I often made for a clearing in which a gnarled and grizzled ancient, with a filthy pork-pie hat crammed down on his head, sat upright on a section of tree trunk cutting tent pegs from hazel branches. One, two, three jabs against a long blade fixed upright in front of him, and almost before the chips had landed on the ground, another peg went onto the pile. He hardly ever spoke, but as he did not seem to resent my presence, I used to stand and watch him, fascinated by the precision and economy of his movements. I see him now chipping away in a sea of bluebells every spring. Other choice destinations were the dew-ponds scattered about the woods, small circular pools ten or fifteen yards across, all perfectly round and enclosed by trees or bushes. It was clear from their shape that they had been dug by humans, but there was something mysterious about the way they always contained water. In that high chalk country there were no springs or streams to replenish them, yet they never dried out. Was it rain that filled them, or, as their name suggested, condensing dew? One pool was so thickly covered with algae that we called it the green slime and it was there that I witnessed the magical sight of a woodcock carrying chicks one at a time between its thighs. The bird flew low and heavily for about fifty yards before depositing its freight at a point which it obviously thought safe. On the farm most of the power came from heavy horses, which did the ploughing and drilling and hauled the wooden-wheeled harvest wagons into the rickyard behind the barns. They were driven and looked after by old Dave Collis, a small bent man with one roomy eye who was reputed to be deaf only when he wanted to be. The farm also boasted one veteran blue tractor, a sign of things to come, but, like the horses, life moved at a leisurely pace. The two great events of the year were harvest and threshing. As the corn ripened in July, everybody available joined forces to bring in the barley, wheat and oats, Children, office workers, shop girls, boys from school camps organised by the government, all came out to help. Our harvesting machine was a binder drawn by two horses, a weird-looking contraption with spinning wheels and unguarded drive belts, topped by a skeletal rotating flail which swept the crop backwards onto a reciprocating knife.
Round and round the field it crawled, cutting the stalks, ingesting them and binding them into bundles with heavy twine, the knife chattering and the release mechanism giving a loud clack every time it ejected a sheaf. Great was the excitement as the area of standing corn gradually diminished and rabbits trapped in it began to panic, weaving tell-tale trails of ripples through the ears as they dashed back and forth in search of a safe exit. Boys with sticks and, further out, old farmhands with guns surrounded the shrinking patch, eager for the quarry to break cover. With the light failing and their shelter almost gone, the rabbits had no option but to run for it, and suddenly all was action. The men firing, the boys yelling, lashing out with our sticks and diving onto individual sheaves as we tried to pin down fugitives which had taken temporary cover. Nobody was squeamish in those days. We knew how to kill a rabbit.